had the opportunity that this past weekend has been uh, the men's retreat, and my hope is that um, just that you continue to be in prayer for the guys as they've been up there and um, and just clinging to truly kind of one another. It's uh, it's been a great season for them in terms of just being able to get up and to to worship God and spend time together. It was a, a little bit different man camp than what we're used to. Um, it, was, uh, it was a little more intimate group as a whole, and I would say that there were more men yesterday in hammocks than I've ever seen, and I'm not joking. It was like they hung these hammocks, and there was, I think at one given time, there was like 12 guys that I saw in hammocks, not, not in the same hammock, but, um, but 12 guys all spread out in the different hammocks, and then Guys were, there were guys, it was, it was quite unique. It was, what I sensed was a, a time for rest and rejuvenation. A lot of times that man camp guys are kind of going and doing different things. And yesterday was just a day where guys, there was a group that literally sat around the campfire all day. They ate breakfast, went, heard the word in the morning, came back, went to the campfire, then we got lunch, came back to the campfire, sat around the campfire until around the time that we had one of, uh, we had a question and answer time around four o'clock. And they came to that, had dinner, and then they were there last night around the fire when I left. Um, and so um, I think it was a, a great opportunity for guys just to get to know one another, but even more than that, a time of refreshment for them, just to be able to, to quiet and still their lives. And this morning, my hope is that as we're coming before the Lord, that we're, we're stilling our lives before Him, that we're being still, right? I mean, one of the instructions in the Psalms is to be still and know that I'm God, and we live in, a, in, a, in a, a culture that is noisy, it's loud, it's busy, and we get sucked into that, do we not? We get sucked into that busyness and that noise. And even in those moments where we actually want to find time away, we end up not having time away, we actually end up just trying to find time to get to a place where there's not a lot of noise. Um, I find that when I go to study for my messages, that uh, one of the hardest things for me to do is find a place that's quiet. And, and the office is not a quiet place. It's not going to be the place that I find that, that kind of place to, to focus and to, to find that solitude. And we need that in our lives. And so one of the things that we can do together is we come together on a Sunday morning as we're resting in God's word. This is a place for us to be still and to know God. I mean, that really is a place for us to do that together as we gather. Um, last week, we looked at the last part of Acts 2, and we've been going together through Acts as we've started come together and we came together as uh, uh, two churches that we're marrying together. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we are uh, two churches that have come together as one. On August 20th, we, we came together. We had been sharing and partnering in ministry for a number of years, but on August 20th, we came together as one church, as one local church. And so we have been moving through the, 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 the book of Acts and Last Sunday, we looked at Acts chapter 2, and we focused on the fact of what were essentially the, the, the key principles of a, a gathering of believers, and we looked at the idea of the apostles' teaching, of the doctrine, of the word being central, and we looked at this commitment to the fellowship, this commitment or partnership that one another, that God did not call us to live apart, to live in isolation, but rather to live in a group of believers, and that God also called us to worship him, that we were to come together and those gatherings were to be marked by remembrance through communion of 
the, the, the work that Christ had done on the cross, that we were sinners, that we were in need of a Savior, that God looked upon his people with love and he sent his son Jesus to die and take the penalty of our sin. And then the good news in that is for, for all those who repent and believe on Jesus, it says that we have, his righteousness has been imparted, imputed to us, that we are now forgiven and we have life. And then we saw the importance of prayer. But the corporate gathering, as we also talked about last week, was to be a precursor of what is to come when the kingdom comes. When Jesus returns, his establishment, his, his perfection, that the church actually gives a glimpse of that. When we look at those scriptures together, we, we see the fact that there, is, there will be no poor. We see the fact that there will be togetherness, there will be unity. And amongst it, we'll be praising God and thanking God in the midst of that unity. Well, this week, we're going to move away from Acts just for this week. And we're going to be looking this morning at what worshipful ministry really is. What does it mean to worship inside of the church? As I looked at different studies, there were some things that I began looking at. Was how, what does our service look like inside of Christ church? There's lots of different instructions on how to follow Jesus that are very explicit in Scripture. How to be a good husband. We see God says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? right. And then we see for wives, there is a, this, this submitting and honoring that God has instructed. We see for children that they're to honor their parents. We see for fathers that they're not supposed to provoke their children. We see that as employees and employers, we see this demonstrated through the, the master and slave relationship in the New Testament, where we see this coming together of this kind of, how is an employer supposed to treat employees, and how are employees supposed to respond to their employer? We see these things really explicitly. But when it comes to how we're to serve within Christ's church, it's not necessarily laid out as neatly. The reality is, is that we're told what it's supposed to look like as we walk in the power of the Spirit, but that's supposed to infiltrate our, the entirety of our lives. Because the, the thought process is that our service and ministry within Christ's church was never to be separated from our walk with God. It was to be something that was, in essence, universal to each of us who were chosen to follow God. There was a natural assumption that the way that we would live out our faith would work itself out, that in our service to others, it meant that we were going to be serving within the body of Christ, and it meant that we were going to be serving within the world. The truth is, is that as you look statistically, a statistic that hasn't changed much over the last 40 years, is that truly within the church, 20% of the body does the majority of the work. 20%. That's an amazing number when you think about it. Only 20% of the body does the majority of the work. And the way that that's usually tied together is that 20% of the body does 80% of the work. And when we think about that, that 80% is only doing 20%, those are national numbers that they look within the evangelical church of how are we doing and serving within the body. And so this morning... As we look at this passage in Romans, we're going to see how 
God lays out, how His Word lays out how we're to serve Him within His church. So let's go ahead and look at Romans chapter 12 this morning. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12. We're going to start momentarily in verse 1, and then we're going to focus specifically on verses 3 through 13. But let's read that passage together. Let's go ahead and stand together as we read it. This is what it says. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. <clears throat> be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. Lord God, as we look at your word this morning, Father, will you teach us minister in a way that brings honor to you. Father, may we see our ministry, the ministry that you've given us, may we see that as an act of worship to you. Father, if there's things within our own heart this morning that need to be settled before you, may we confess that to you, Father, and may we lay it at your feet. Father, if there's worries or anxiousness or any kind of burdens, may we give that to you. Father, we pray that you would bring your word forth, that you would move me aside, and it would be you. Lord God, may in humility with you as you lead and teach us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Worshipful ministry in the body of Christ builds up one another through the humble use of our gifts in love. Worshipful ministry in the body of Christ builds up one another through the humble use of our gifts in love. What is this ministry? It's to be based in this gift of love. And we're going to see throughout this passage that 
the gifts that God has given us, these gifts that are be to be used for His ministry, are actually an example of His grace being demonstrated towards us. Today, when we look at the church, there are many that evaluate the effectiveness of a church based on the number of programs and ministries that a church has to offer. We look at it based upon, does it have a children's ministry? Does it have a, a youth ministry? Does it have a, a men's ministry and a women's ministry? Does it have a, a homeless ministry? And churches from the outside are often seen as effective simply by the number of ministries that they possess. In, in fact, it used to be something that was kind of an old thing that was taught, that the more ministries that you had, the greater catch-all you could have. You could capture more people because you had more ministry. The problem is, is that that actually puts things into man's understanding. The truth is, is that the effectiveness of the ministry is not determined by the size of the ministry, but it's determined by the ministry's heart before God. Because if the, the ministry is apart from a right heart from God, it's simply busy work. It's simply busy work if the heart is not right before God. And, and that means that there's just ministries put in place for the sake of ministry. Our call is not to create more work. Our call is to submit to the Lord's leading and focus on the things that are going to bring Him glory. And, and so as we looked last week at these principles of a godly, biblical, Christ-centered gathering, now we're seeing how is it that God desires us to serve within this fellowship of believers. Well, in Romans 12:1 it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in, in Greek, the word spiritual is the word logikos. And it means reasonable or possessed by speech. That's what it means. And, and so the phrase spiritual worship carries it with it the idea of rational service. This idea of our daily living, the way that we live our lives. But it actually goes one step further. Because the word is logikos, it has this tie to it that deals with the word. It's basically your rational life, your rational being, your rational service according to God's word. That's the idea. The idea is, is that our behavior tied to the word is worshipful to God. The point being that not everything that we do is going to be an act of worship, right? I mean, we know that. We know that there are certain things that we do in our own lives where we're like, oh, that's not an act of worship, right? When we lose our cool or we lose our patience with our children, there are many times that that's not an act of worship. And we can go, but they're not having an act of worship either by the way they're responding to me, right? We can't control them, right? The thing is, is that it's the Spirit controlling and working in our life. Right? And so, everything that we do that's according to God's word is actually an act of worship. And so, when we surrender our lives completely to Christ, everything we do is an act of this worship, this worship to God. So, verse 3 says this, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, one of the things that Paul is dealing with is 
he is recognizing that within the church, within the Roman believers, there is a tendency to attribute greater value to the more public gifts, to those who are teaching and preaching, to those who have other areas of gifting that are known and seen, that there is this tendency for a puffing up, a sense of being better than. And for others, there's a sense of, well, I don't know that I really have much here. I don't know that my gift really is that big of a difference within the body of Christ. And so Paul says right off the get-go, understand, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This word sober in Greek is the word sophronero, and it literally means to be sensible or reasonable or sound mind. What he's saying is you need to put it in context to who you are in Jesus. You need to recognize that your value is not on what the things that you do, but your value is in Christ. And if your value is in Christ and the work that Jesus did on the cross had nothing to do with you, it was for you, but you didn't do it, that you couldn't bring Christ's salvation into your life, it was only through Christ and His work, then we had to see ourselves as unworthy of it in the first place. And if I'm unworthy, everybody else is unworthy. And if everybody else is unworthy and I'm unworthy, then it's only by God's grace that we're saved through faith. And it's only by God's grace that we are granted the gifts that we are given. And so we are not to assume that our gifts are less important or more important than others or that we're more special than someone else. See, when pride is at work in our lives, when we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, we're really not thinking rightly about God's grace. When we see ourselves as more valuable than others, and when those things come to mind in our heart where we, man, they can't really do without me, if those things come out in our heart, those should be cautions to us, words that, that prick our spirit that go, oops, there's something rising up here that's rebelling against God. For others, it might be that This pride is working itself out in deception. See, when we embrace the truth that the work of grace in our life is not the result of anything in us, but solely the work of Christ, that's when we'll begin to lay down our pride. And that's when we'll begin to walk in humility. And it's only with a humble heart that we will see our value and the value of others in Christ. See, we need to remember, as Gabe Guzik puts it, that Spiritual giftedness does not equal spiritual maturity. Just because a person has a substantial spiritual gift does not mean that they are necessarily spiritually mature or a worthy example. We come first by laying our lives down before Jesus. That's where we come. When we lay our lives down before Jesus, then as we walk in the power of the Spirit and use the gifts that God has given, only then are we doing the effective work of Christ. And it's only then that God is empowering that work because we're walking in a place of humility. See, sometimes pride actually works itself out in a deprecating way. See, most of us think of pride as a boasting, but pride also works it out by saying, I have nothing to offer. 
It says, I have nothing to offer this body. And the truth is, is it either one, both the one that says, I have more to offer than anybody else, or the one that says, I have nothing to offer, are both places of pride. Because both move away from the truth of God, both are rejecting what Christ has actually said, which is, it's only by me, and the other one, that you are worthy because of me. In both cases, I've put the emphasis on me rather than on Christ. And when we walk in pride, we become deceived. Now, verse 4 and 5 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So here's the essential truth of this passage. The essential truth is that every believer is important and essential in the ministry of the body of Christ. Every believer is important and essential in the ministry of the body of Christ. Every single one. If you're two years old, you are important to the ministry of the body of Christ. If you are 99 years old, you are important to the ministry of the body of Christ. One of those things of the old sayings of the, well, we've got the young people, they're the future of the church. They're not the future of the church, they are the church, right? And and, and we have to remember that, that God has gifted them as well. That God has given them unique gifts that are to be cultivated and built up and encouraged And what a refreshing thing it is when we see youth and children using those gifts, walking into adulthood, walking into maturity, using those gifts that God has given them. See, each believer has a different function, and one is not better than the other. And the reality is we have to set down that self-righteousness or that self-deprecating pride. Because pride will always deceive us. Pride will make us think that we are either better than or we are worse than. And Christ basically says, you are only because of me. And if we understand that, then we begin to see the functions and the gifts that God has given as essential to his body. See, God's gifted you by his grace, the same grace that both saves and sanctifies He's given you a function within his church for the building up of his body. His grace truly is sufficient for you. His grace is truly sufficient for us. You are important and essential part of Christ's ongoing work in the fellowship of believers. That's what Paul is getting at. Every single one of us is an important and essential part of the body of Christ. Now notice what it says in verse 6. It says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. See, just as God gave you the gift or grace of salvation and sanctification, He's also given you a gift or grace to be used for the building of the body. So we don't get the freedom to say, ah, God missed me on this one. God missed me. He left me off the gift list, right? It's not like showing up at Christmas with no gifts under the tree. When God has granted us the gift of the Holy Spirit through our repentance and belief on Christ, he then gives us gifts so that we might be equipped to function within the service and ministry of his church. That's pretty awesome. So each of us, every single one of us, God has gifted. That's good news. And the idea here is we need to be content with the gifts that God has given. 
We need to not look out and go, man, I sure wish I had that gift, right? And we also need to be thankful for the gifts that others have gotten. I remember as a kid, there's a great picture. My family household, uh, Christmas, and my cousins who were like brothers to me, we grew up together, and there's a wonderful picture of us at Christmas time at my grandparents' house. They gave my cousin a good humor ice cream truck. It was like a, you know, this thing you sat on and you rolled around on this thing? Well, there, all the good humor's lost in this picture because the rest of us wanted to get on that thing and ride it. And so a fight ensued, and our parents took this picture of hats coming off, faces contorted, fists flying, you know, <laughs> at four and five, right? That, that's not the way that God wants us to receive the gift that he's given us. He wants us to re- receive that gift with joy, with honor, understanding that this is how God has gifted me. See, the truth of this is affirmed in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, which says, Now there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11 continues, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what we see here then are two keys to worshipful ministry, to ministry that's being driven with a right heart that brings honor to God. The first we see in verse 6. It simply says, let us use them. Let us use them. Now understand what Paul is saying here. Paul's tone in Romans 1 through 11 is all about the redemption of mankind through Jesus. That's Romans 1 through chapter 11 in a nutshell. Romans 12, he moves and he says, listen, this is how I want you to live your life so that it might be worshipful in response to my redemption, the redemption that Jesus has provided through the work of the cross. And so he comes and he shifted gears and now he says, let us use them. Notice the plural there, let us use them. The whole body Let every single member of the body use their gifts. But then he comes, and it's even stronger that. This is a command structure. It's there. It's forceful. Paul's saying, listen, the implication is use them. I gave them to you. Go ahead and use them. What are you waiting for? Use them. Keep using them. That's kind of where he's going with this. The idea is use the gifts that I've given you. And he wants us to understand and to use the gifts because he's saying, listen, I've gifted you for the work of my ministry. I've given you a function in my ministry. Use them. So then he lays out here what some of these spiritual gifts are. But we know that in 1 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 4, that it speaks of some of the same spiritual gifts mentioned here, but also speaks of other gifts. But in this passage, Paul is dealing specifically with spiritual gifts which deal with the ministry of God's Word and the work within His body. This passage is dealing specifically with the ministry of God's Word and work within the body of Christ. So the first spiritual gift that we see, it says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, What is prophecy? It's declaring God's will in truth. Declaring God's will in truth. That's what prophecy is. 
It's not simply the idea of good preaching. See, preaching, the word for preaching in Greek is the word euangelion, and the word for prophecy is prophetero. They're two different things. And the prophecy that's being spoken of here is the declaring of God's will in truth. It's grounded and rooted in the truth, but it, it may be that I need to call to account what is happening. If we look at a prophet's life for a moment, and we see what were they calling the people to, they were calling the nations to repentance. God's saying, listen, for those that have the gift of prophecy, part of that is you're calling people to a place of repentance, to turn You're telling them what is going to happen if they continue down this path of destruction. Now, that's not foretelling. That's not telling of the future. It's forthtelling, meaning it is giving instruction, saying this is what God's Word says will happen if you continue in this way. Prophecy might also be the sharing of what God has done at work within your life and the telling of how God has encouraged you and built you up so that as you share that the body is built up in line with Scripture. It's this idea of declaring God's will in truth. Keith Krell puts it this way. He says, Prophecy is the declaration of God's will to God's people. Prophecy is for edification and encouragement and does not necessarily exclude teaching and doctrine. See, the person with the spiritual gift of prophecy is focusing on what God is leading in and calling to, contained by the Word of God. It's shaped by the Word of God. It's not new revelation. It's His truth being confirmed through His Word. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. R.C. Sproul adds, The prophecy of which Paul speaks is not to be confused with the predicting of future events, but rather that which a person had received from God for instruction, exhortation, or comfort. Those who considered themselves recipients of this gift were always to conform their message to the objective standard of the faith once delivered and were to be judged by their conformity to that standard of faith. In no instance should their prophesying contradict the objective revelation of the Scriptures. Right? It's in line with God's Word. It's in line with God's Word. Now, the second spiritual gift that's mentioned here is service. It says, if service in our serving. Now, this is meeting the individual and corporate practical needs within the body of Christ. It's an instruction to care for the needs which may arise within the fellowship believers and for the gathering as a whole. And and this word service in Greek is actually the root word for deacon or diakonai. Now, when I was growing up, I... Grew up in a home in which my dad was a pastor. Dad pastored for 18 years. My grandfather, as many of you know, pastored for 48 years by the time he had a stroke. My mom's dad. The last thing that I wanted in my life was to be a pastor. I mean, the last thing. I'm not exaggerating that truth. I can remember sitting in a kitchen at one day asking, hey, do you think you'll ever follow, be a pastor and follow in your dad's footsteps? I'm like, there is not a chance in this world that I will do that. When you start talking like that before God, God does things that you're not expecting, right? But when I was 13 years old, my dad had committed adultery and left the ministry, left our family, and we moved from the Central Valley back to Castor Valley. 
And when I came back, my idea of what the church was was just nothing but a collection of hypocrites. If this, my dad could do this and seemingly have no conscience about doing it in that moment, then surely the rest of the body must be the same. In those moments, in that time, over the next three years, God brought a total of eight men into my life from the church that I attended. One was my grandfather, one was my uncle. Those men stepped in and served as fathers in my life. Not only did they serve as fathers in my life, they were ones that included me on the little things. My uncle took my cousins to baseball games. I went to every single baseball game. I went to every football game. Why? Because it was, I was a son in them. That's what it felt like. When I got into high school, I was going to my junior prom. Got off the freeway on the wrong exit down in MacArthur, down in downtown Oakland. We were already running behind. It was 11.30 at night. We had to get to Alameda. The dance ended at 1. We're sitting in downtown Oakland off MacArthur Boulevard. Car breaks down, does not start. I have no idea what to do. For most of you guys that know me, you know that I don't really have mechanical bone, specifically as it relates to cars, in my body. Everything that I know is just taught by other men, even in this church today. Joe's taught me a lot. Tim's taught me a lot. Got down there, and I picked up the phone, I called my mom, and I said, I don't know what to do. 20 minutes later, they didn't have cell phones, so there really wasn't a way for her to call me back. She said, I'll figure out something. Just stay tight. 20 minutes later, here comes this man from my church. Shows up. Says, hey, I drove your mom's car down here. Take her car. I'll deal with all this stuff. You get to the dance. Take care of it. That man's name was a man by the name of Mike Crimmins. He stayed down there all night with that car, made sure it got home, took care of it so I could go to a dance. I came back a few months later. Now I'm looking for a new car. I don't know what to look for in a car, but I was a high school kid, 17 years old, 16 years old, standing around outside church in our patio, talking tough with a bunch of other guys like, I'm going to go buy a car. I got to go buy a car, you know, I got to go find one. Yeah, I'm fine, I'm good. I'm going to go look at the Trader magazines, we're good to go. This man in the church walked by, listened to this conversation. That afternoon, I get a phone call. Hey, Tim, this is Jerry Sarton. Um, you know anything about cars? <laughs> not a thing. He goes, well, I heard you're buying a car. I'm trying, I'm trying. He goes, well, you're not buying a car alone. You'll borrow a car with me. This man had three daughters of his own. Calls me over. We sit in his living room for hours going through Trader, East Bay Trader newspapers, circling every car, going to used car dealerships. We go appointment after appointment after appointment to these different places. After about, literally about another three to four months as we're looking for these cars, of what's in the cost range, he comes and he says, hey, Tim, I have to tell you something. Um, I think I found a car for you. He goes, but you're not going to like it. He goes, it's not, it's not a hot-looking car. And he said, but here's a choice you have to make. One point in your life, you become a man. And you decide to do what you need versus what you want. And he said, I went and I met with another man. 
This man's name was Joe Blackman. He was a deacon in our church. He owned an auto shop, and they had a shop car. This car had been completely rebuilt from top to bottom. Came in, he looked at it, and he said, you're probably not going to like it, right? I said, well, it's not a lot to look at. He said, it doesn't really matter if we're looking at it. It gets you to work, gets you where you're going, gets you to class, you start college, gets you there. What are you going to do? I said, I'll give you a week. I'll, I'll think about this for a week. I literally thought, there's got to be a better option. <laughs> I came back after that week. Joe came to me and he said, Tim, he said, if you do this, I'll take care of the maintenance on the car. These men came around me. I bought that car. That car went for 250,000 miles. Wow. And would have gone longer, except it turned into a greenhouse. <laughs> Here's the point. The reason I mention these men's names is because they mattered. They were the ones that came around me in a time where they treated me as if I was a son, as a, a person that needed somebody else. They saw the need, and they stepped in with the gifts that they had. They didn't sit back and say, well, I don't think that I have something to offer, but they understood that God had gifted them and that their gifts mattered within the body of Christ. And what they did was they took this 13-year-old boy who had, was growing up in the church believing that the church was nothing but a bunch of hypocrites and seeing these men live out the love of Christ as demonstrated to me. 17 years later, four years ago, about 17 years later, we happen to be driving from here on vacation. We're passing through. We're going up to Sonora on the freeway. Wouldn't you know, as we're passing through Castor Valley, before we get to the first exit, motor unexplainably shuts off on our minivan. I mean, shuts off. No explanation. We coast down this off-ramp. What do I do? Joe's shop's a block away. By God's grace, Joe's shop's a block away. We pulled in. Joe, I have no idea what's wrong with this. Now, I haven't talked to Joe in 17 years. I just show up at the shop. I've got the kids, car full of stuff. Looks, I'll take the van for a couple days. They had to replace motor mounts. They had to replace a ton of stuff. He comes back and he says, hey, uh, just want to let you know, we had a good time working on your car. The job was about a $3,000 job. He charged me $500. This man, 17 years later, still using his gifts to care. See, that's the body of Christ. When we serve him, we have this gift of service, and we put all the stock a lot of the times in, man, if it's not an upfront ministry, does it really matter? Yes, it matters. Yes, it matters. See, there's an interesting part of this passage here. If you notice in those giftings, notice what he says here. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. So what he's saying here is, listen, before we get to the individual gifts, I want you to know that there may be some who have the gift of prophecy and there may be some that have the gift of serving, but every single one of us, the moment we come to Jesus, every single one of us is called to declare God's will and truth and every single one of us is called to serve one another. We can do that the very day that we come to Jesus. 
And he's reminding us of that. He's reminding us that while we still may not be gifted in the area of prophecy, of declaring God's will and truth, we're still called to do it. And while we may not necessarily be gifted at service, we're still called to do it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, where Christians live together, the time must inevitably come when in some crisis one person will have to declare God's word and will to another. It is inconceivable that things that are of utmost importance to each individual should not be spoken by one to another. He goes on and he adds, it's, it's unchristian consciously to deprive one another of the one decisive service we can render to them, the declaring of God's will in truth and the serving and meeting practical needs within their life. So we're going to quickly move through the other gifts here. The next one, it says, the one who teaches in his teaching. Here's where it becomes singular. So it's teaching God's word. And teaching God's word reveals the truth about God and our response to him. Then it says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. It's encouraging one another in truth. That's really what it is. It helps us walk in the revelation of God's word. Now, that encouragement may not always come in the form of compassion. That encouragement may come in direction and correction. Exhortation often is directive and corrective. Has to be. You want to encourage your child in the way of the Lord, you teach them the truth, and then you help them along the way. And sometimes they would tell you it doesn't always seem very compassionate but you're walking in love with them. And this is the one who contributes in generosity. This is a, a generous giving. That there are those that have been called to give, that have the gift of giving, and it's to be done in generosity. And then in leading, God has called those who have the spiritual gift of leadership to lead. It says here to do it with zeal. And zeal refers to the diligence or the, the, the intensity of the effort. It deals with the inward desire matching the outward manifestation. If I have a desire to lead people, then the outside needs to match the inside. We need to be diligent. See, leadership can come with lots of criticism. Am I going to be diligent and lead with zeal in the midst of it? Am I going to push through it and hold my ground in humility but am I going to lead? See, the interesting thing about serving God, when he says, let us, in essence, do it, let us use them, is his point is, listen, we're all busy, every single one of us. We can always find a reason not to serve God. Always. We can always find a reason not to serve God. And we can even find what we see as good reasons not to serve God. Not to use the gifts that he's given. And yet his instruction says, listen, the natural outworking of God's grace is that we might serve his people with the gifts that he's given. And it's not to be pushed aside by excuse. The final thing he says here is the, those who do acts of mercy with cheerfulness, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, providing shelter for the homeless. Those are really acts of mercy, and we're to do it with cheerfulness, not with a, a grumpiness, right? Oh, man, I have to do this. This is gross. I'm out. But we do it with a joy, seeing that God came to us in our sickness 
through Jesus and cares for us. So how do we know what our spiritual gifts are? Well, we know our spiritual gifts predominantly by being within the fellowship of believers. Because it's being within the fellowship of the believers that our spiritual gifts are confirmed. Now, there are nice little kind of tidy little inventories that kind of help us see periodically what those spiritual gifts are. But the truth is, the best way to find out the spiritual gift is to be within the body of Christ and allow the body of Christ to confirm the gifts that you have. We see that model in the New Testament. We see the body confirming the gifts of the believers in the New Testament church. One of the reasons it's important to gather together is so that we might be able to confirm one another's gifts. So finally, Paul says here in verse 9, he moves from this gifts and he says, listen, I'm going to show you something else here about worshipful ministry. And he says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love apart, that works apart from love be nothing. And so we're to minister in love without hypocrisy. The first essential or key to worshipful ministry is that we're to use our spiritual gifts. The second is that we are to minister in love without hypocrisy. What are we to do there where it says, let love be genuine? Well, how do we then not love with hypocrisy? Well, we're to have a genuine love for three things, and we see this in verse 9. It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We're to have a genuine love for God. A genuine love for God. That genuine love for God is to be marked by a life that desires righteousness. We're not to serve God simply because of a sense of duty, but we're to serve God out of what Christ has already done. The second thing that we're to have a genuine love for is others. Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. We need to have a genuine love for one another. If we find ourselves not liking people, we need to be praying and asking the Spirit to change our heart. Think about a spouse for a moment. Husband looks at his wife and says, hey, hon, we're going to dinner tonight. She says, why? Where are we going? He says, well, we'll kind of go wherever you want to. I don't really want to go, but I have to because you're my wife. (laughs) Most wives would look at you and say, you you can go eat by yourself. (laughs) Within the church, that happens, does it not? We say, well, I have to. I need to serve this person because I have to. No, we're to serve them because we have a genuine love for them. Because Christ had a love for us. And the final thing that we're to have a genuine love for is being a servant of Christ. Being a servant of Christ. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's this whole command structure. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be content in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What 
a huge thing. We're to have a love for being a servant of Christ. How can we be patient in tribulation? The way that we're patient in tribulation is by saying, God, use me where I'm at. I remember a moment where years ago, it was one of these helpful moments, and what, you know you have these little sayings that occur in your life that you remember, and you're like, you're not sure why you remember it, but it's a little minor detail. I remember years ago, going to pick up my dad at Stockton Airport, and the airplane was flying around, and it got stuck in the Thule fog, you know, the Central Valley Thule fog that was there, and they couldn't land at the airport. And, and so he was like an hour and a half late as they circled over Stockton for an hour and a half before they could land. And I said, uh, I said, did you get angry? He goes, oh, I used to get angry about this stuff. But what are you going to do? You can't do anything, so you might as well enjoy it, right? And it sounds like a real simple little saying. What does that matter? But I wonder sometimes if we wouldn't take that approach to tribulation in our life, right? God's got us here for a purpose. We're to be his servant. I love being his servant. So that means that in the middle of this tribulation, God's going to give me an opportunity to display his glory. How awesome is that? There's nothing I can do about it so I might as well get on board with Christ. That's what it means when we're patient in tribulation, that we are allowing God to be a servant. And the only way to do that is by seeing God's grace. One pastor put it this way, and he summed up the passage this way. He said, I know there are people in this church who believe they're committed to the Lord, but if you look at their life and try to see where they actually comes out into service, it just isn't there. And if we do nothing else but eliminate that illusion that you can be committed to Christ with no basic ministry, with no basic service, with no passion for using the gifts God's given you, then we've done service to all. People say, well, I realize that I'm really dedicated to the Lord, but for right now, I'm busy with my job, I'm busy working, I'm busy shopping, I'm busy hobbying, I'm busy recreating, I'm busy vacationing, I'm, 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 I'm busy resting or whatever. And there's a time for all of that. But dedication to Christ works out in service. And that's what Paul's saying. It doesn't mean that there's not a time and place to say, right now in this season I can't serve. It does mean that we are to be a, a people who are minding and mindful that God has called us to serve and to be servants of Him and to live lives of worship as we serve Him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that we can come before you, that we can look at the power of your word. May we be people who worship you through our ministry, through the gifts that you've given us for your church and to serve within your church. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.